This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. It is my distinguished honor to welcome Dr. Anthony Fauci to the Berkeley Forum. Dr. Fauci is well known in his role as the current director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and as a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. However, Dr. Fauci is no stranger to the spotlight. In the 1980s, he was a pivotal figure in America's fight against the HIV/AIDS epidemic. Critically, in 1992, in response to activists, he pushed for the approval of the parallel track at the FDA. This led to patients being able to access experimental drugs earlier and resulted in countless lives being saved. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Fauci and tonight's moderator Abey Agarwal to the virtual stage. Well, thank you for coming today to the Berkeley Forum, Dr. Fauci. For my first question, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of your past work and go a little bit back in time. When researching the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, you personally faced criticism from activists within the LGBTQ+ community who harbored a deep distrust of the government. How if at all has the response you received then similar to or different from the response you face now as a public health official in the United States? Well, th- well, thank you for the question and also thank you all for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Um, yeah, whenever you're involved in uh, charged and contentious public health uh, issues, there is always some form of pushback one or the other. What you referred to uh, was a situation where the activists in the 1980s, before we had uh, efficient, effective therapies that are now life-saving therapies, were very concerned that the federal government in their rigidity, uh, both from a scientific and regulatory standpoint, were not understanding the urgency of getting uh, interventions to them as quickly as possible. They wanted to be part of the process, the process of discussion of how you design clinical trials and how you arrange the research agenda. The scientific community and particularly the regulatory community at the time now retrospectively it looks like how could we possibly have been thinking that way felt that only scientists and regulators knew what was best for the patients and for the people at risk for the disease so they did not allow what was mostly the gay community into the discussions of design of clinical trials and the research agenda so the activist community pushed back since i was a visible member of the federal government even though what i was doing was actually exactly what they were hoping we would do they nonetheless felt that since i represented the federal government they would be demonstrating against me and we had an adversarial relationship until very quickly i realized that they had a very good point and if i took away the theatrics and the demonstration and the iconoclastic behavior what they were saying made absolute sense so in that respect the pushback from a group of individuals was based on 
reality and sound fundamental principles. They were actually correct. (laughs) And they opened the eyes of people like myself and scientists and regulators to the fact that you needed to get them involved in the process of determining what the direction would be of how to address HIV. Today, it's really very different. But we're involved with today is a divisiveness, the likes of which I've never seen. There's always a little bit politics one way or the other when you're dealing, whatever the outbreak is, whether it's Ebola or Zika or HIV AIDS or pandemic flu. But what we're seeing now, not only in the United States, but globally, is a level of of almost venom against each other, as opposed to realizing that the enemy is the virus. And when you talk about public health measures, if you disagree with something, it doesn't mean that that person is the enemy. So yes, there was contentiousness and pushback, but I think one was entirely justifiable and productive. And one I think is totally non-productive and in fact, inhibiting what we're trying to do and inhibiting it in a serious way. Going off of this theme of some of the disinformation and pushback against responses to COVID, according to John Hopkins University, social media outlets, as well as other digital platforms, have disseminated quite a few myths and rumors about the pandemic, which have equipped individuals with a lot of misinformation. Given the pros and cons of social media, how, if at all, has have these platforms impacted the public's response to COVID-19? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's a troublesome question because the answer is that it has impacted it, I think, in some respects, more negatively than positively. I mean, the social media, as you know as well, I'm sure, as anyone else, is an extraordinary way to disseminate information quickly and widely. One of the problems is when disinformation gets in there, it has a way of self-propagating itself to the point where you don't know what's true and what's not true. So I think overall, some of the disinformation that's out there, the conspiracy theories uh, are really ridiculous when you think about them, but they're out there and they actually have a segment of the population of people who actually seriously believe it. That really gets in the way of when you're trying to put together a public health uh, program for people to follow. I mean, the examples of people not wanting to wear masks or not believing that if you just go in a crowd, you're not going to get infected, or if you do get infected, it's going to be meaningless because it's a trivial outbreak. Well, how could it be a trivial outbreak if it's already killed 210,000 people in the United States and a million people worldwide? But there are people out there that think all of this is a big conspiracy, that we've made it up. You know, I was on a program this morning with Bill Gates and Bill and I were were reminiscing that, you know, there's conspiracy theories out there that Bill Gates with his power with the internet is putting chips in people's brains to make them, to make them act in a certain way. I mean, really, you kind of scratch your head and say, is this really true? But it's out there and that's unfortunate. Do you see if any, an opportunity within your role to combat some of those myths and any effective ways to do it moving forward? Yes, it's not easy, but it can be done. You've got to be consistent in your messaging. You've got to be articulate in your messaging. You've got to understand what your audience is, and you have to have 
a crisp, clear message. One of the problems that many scientists have is that when they try to message, they do it at a level that really confounds things rather than clarifies things. So if you're trying to overcome myths and disinformation, you've got to be out there, but you've got to be out there in a consistent way. And what you say needs to be based on solid scientific data and evidence and not the kind of surmising and conjectures that often drive the other side of that argument. A part of some of this public's mis- some of the public's mistrust in the government have been the criticism that U.S. agencies have received about the response to the pandemic, especially in terms of conflicting directives. For instance, whether or not people should wear masks. What if any are the challenges of relaying accurate directives to the public, especially when a situation is rapidly evolving, as we saw earlier in the spring? Yeah. Well, you bring up a really good point, and it gives me the opportunity to explain something that people often get confused about. I take the issue of masks. Like right now, there are people who say we shouldn't be using masks, but that's just people who don't really understand the data. And, and we'll put that aside for a minute. But let's go back in time to the early part of the outbreak when it was felt that there would be a shortage of masks for the actual people who really need it, namely the healthcare providers who are putting themselves at risk to take care of people. And it was felt that if everybody went out and started hoarding masks, that there would not be enough for those who really need it. So masks were not recommended. They were also not recommended because there was not yet enough data to indicate that masks were actually quite effective in preventing the acquisition and transmission of infection. And three, we didn't fully understand the total scope of how the virus was transmitted. Then as the weeks and months went by, several things changed. So in February, we were saying, you don't really need to wear a mask because of the three or four reasons I just gave you. But then as A, it became clear that cloth coverings were just as good as the surgical mask, and you can make hundreds of millions of cloth coverings, so there was no shortage anymore. So take that off the table. Secondly, when you did meta-analysis studies, it became very clear that masks indeed were quite effective in preventing both transmission and acquisition. And then the third thing that really was the nail in the coffin there was that it became clear that about 40 to 50% of all infected people have no symptoms at all. That's astounding. There is no other virus infection that's a serious infection that has that quality. Namely, most of them, not most of them, but almost half of them have no symptoms, and that a substantial proportion of the transmissions occur from someone without symptoms to someone who's not infected. So the, the, the situation completely changed. And it was at that point that everyone, including myself, was saying, absolutely, you've got to wear a mask. And right now, the five public health issues that we repeat over and over again that would really prevent the surges that we're seeing are A, universal wearing of a mask, keep physical distance at least six feet, avoid crowds and congregate settings, do things outdoors much more preferentially than indoors, and wash your hands as frequently as you can. Those are the things that we know now work. 
But back then with the mask, we didn't know it. That was the reason for what is considered inconsistencies about recommendations of wearing masks. As you mentioned, our knowledge about this pandemic and the disease continues to improve as more and more studies are being conducted and as more knowledge is gained just from experience by a lot of our governments. And so how, if at all, has your response to the pandemic and the government's long-term plan for the pandemic changed as we have learned more information, as you just stated? Yeah, uh, one of the things that we have learned, and I, I, I alluded to it partially just a moment ago, that is one of the reasons why there's such confusion, particularly, I might say, among young people, because we know the data are that if you are a young, healthy person like yourself and the people that I see on the screen, the chances if you get infected of your having a serious outcome is very low compared to an elderly person or a person who has an underlying medical condition. However, many young people have underlying medical conditions. And young people, although statistically, they do not get as serious an outcome as elderly individuals. Nonetheless, there's many examples of the fact that they can get seriously ill. So you have a disease that I, like I can say quite frankly, that I've been chasing viruses, as it were, for the last 40 years, uh, outbreaks that go back, as you mentioned, from HIV through the anthrax attacks, through Ebola and Zika and things like that. I've never seen a disease with the wide range of clinical manifestations from 40 to 50% of the people who get no symptoms at all. Of those who get symptoms, about 80% have mild symptoms, which means that they don't require medical intervention, i.e. going to a physician or a hospital. Then there's about 15 to 20% that have significant, severe, or critical disease. That if you get on a ventilator, your mortality is like 20 to 25%. So the thing that gets confusing is that when you tell people, you know, you've got to maintain distance, and you see pictures of people congregating at bars with no masks. And what happens there is that I could understand that inadvertently or even innocently, those people think, why do I need to worry about that? I'm a young person. If I get infected, the chances are overwhelming. I'm not going to get into trouble. So I'm not hurting anybody by getting infected, but I like to go out and have some fun. That's an understandable stance. However, if you do get infected, if you do get infected, even though you have no symptoms, the chances are that you're going to infect someone else who will then infect someone else who will then infect a vulnerable person. That could be someone's mother and father with hypertension or obesity. That could be a grandmother or grandfather who's elderly. That could be a woman who has breast cancer on chemotherapy or an immunodeficient child. And when that person gets sick, they have a good chance of dying. So even though you think that it's okay if I get infected. The fact is you're propagating the outbreak. You're not doing it deliberately. You're not doing it maliciously, but you're propagating the outbreak. That is a big messaging problem for us because right now we're trying to say that everybody, even who's young and healthy, should take very seriously not getting infected, not congregating at bars, 
not doing things like not having distance, not wearing masks and things like that. So what we've learned in answer to your question is the extraordinary range that this disease has that makes it very confusing to people who are trying to deal with it. Considering the scope of this outbreak and which communities are often affected the most, as you just discussed, one of the disparities which stands out in the United States are, is the racial disparities in terms of outcomes and death rates for minority groups when considering this pandemic, which many point to as the result of systemic injustice in the healthcare system. So how, if at all, given our recent Black Lives Matter movement, which is continually ongoing, how, if at all, can governments take that idea of racial equity into mind when considering the scope of this pandemic and how to respond to it? Yeah, that is one of the most painful things to me, who in, of course, this is, this is a repeated theme. You know, with HIV, you have 13% of the population is African-American and 44% of all the new infections are in African-Americans, a major disparity. When you had COVID-19, it's what I call a double whammy. You have minorities, but particularly African-Americans and Latinx with some Native Americans, Alaskan Natives and Pacific Islanders who have two things that are going against them. One, they have a greater likelihood of getting infected by the very nature of the jobs that they usually have. They can't sit behind the computer a lot the way you and I are doing right now. They mostly have jobs where they're physically interacting out in the environment, which puts them at risk of getting infected. You don't like to generalize, but that's an absolute fact that they get infected at a greater rate than non-minorities. But they have a higher degree of incidence and prevalence of the comorbidities that make them highly susceptible to a very serious outcome, including hospitalization and probably death. In fact, if you look at the numbers and the rate, the rate of hospitalization per 100,000 people for Latinx and African-Americans, it's about 365. For whites, it's 80. That is a terrible, horrible disparity. And it's because of the comorbidities, the hypertension, kidney disease, diabetes, obesity, chronic lung disease that make minorities more susceptible. So your question to me is, what do you do about that? Well, in the immediate stage, you can make sure that in minority communities, testing and health services are readily available. And you could do that more quickly than you could do other things. Make sure there's testing there. Make sure they get their testers back very quickly. But then the big problem is, what do you do about the comorbidities? That relates to the social determinants of health that minorities have had to deal with since the day they were born, and in fact, probably before they were born, so that when they get to the age of being at risk for the deleterious consequences of COVID, there's very little you can do about it. But what the government can do now and what the population of our country could do is to realize that COVID-19 is shutting a very bright light on the social determinants of health 
that have been there all along that we don't pay a lot of attention to that is in essence killing minorities in the context of COVID-19. So what I would hope that the terrible experience that we're going through now galvanizes and energizes us to make a decades long commitment to doing things about these social determinants of health, which are reversible, but they're not reversible overnight or in one or two years. They're reversible over a long period of time. And that takes a societal commitment. I hope that's one of the good things that comes out of this outbreak. And so around that conversation of equity, one of the questions that many people have had is, how will vaccines, if and when they're developed, be distributed amongst people, especially regarding factors such as socioeconomic status and those who have access to healthcare in the first place? And so that's a question that I would pose to you is, how do you see these vaccines being distributed, in, if at all, in a way that is equitable for minority communities and other communities throughout the United States? Well, that's something that we are focusing on like a laser beam right now as the vaccines are in clinical trial to determine if they're safe and effective. And what has been put in place is that there is a committee called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that advises the CDC who makes the determination as to the distribution of vaccines, particularly in the early months when you won't have enough to give to everyone right away. There's also a committee that has been put together by the National Academy of Medicine to complement that advisory to Committee on Immunization Practices to come out with a prioritization to make sure that people who are vulnerable and clearly minority populations are vulnerable they get vaccine in a way that is fair and equitable. Now, one of the problems that is gonna complicate and confound that is that because of understandable skepticism about the federal government on the part of minority populations, particularly African-Americans, is that there may be a high percentage of them that don't even wanna get the vaccine which would be a terrible tragedy that you have a disease that disproportionately really ravages an an ethnic or racial group. And then when you get a safe and effective intervention like a vaccine, because of the perception that they don't trust the government, that they don't take the vaccine. So we have two chores that we need to address. A, for those who want the vaccine, we've got to make sure there's equitable distribution. And B, we've got to be very transparent and very engaging with the community to convince them of the advantage of getting vaccinated for themselves and from their family. So we know what the task is. It's not going to be easy, but we absolutely have to address it. So talking about the impact of our public infrastructure and the current state of the United States, given all of these factors, what steps, if any, should we take to address the future pandemics, which may or may not be on the horizon? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question because we had a pandemic preparedness plan that we put together a few years ago in preparation for a pandemic influenza. And the United States was voted by the Johns Hopkins University as the best prepared country in the world to respond to a pandemic. And then we have COVID-19 comes along and we get hit worse than any other country in the world. So there's a lesson there that, you know, the preparedness that you put on a strategic plan isn't the only thing that determines success or failure. It's the kind of organization, collaboration, and uh, consistency in how you address a particular problem that makes the difference. So I hope, and I likely will be involved with this because this will end, and it certainly will end, I hope, (laughs) while I'm still standing. (laughs) Um, And I'd like to be part of the looking back and getting real lessons learned of things that we could have done differently. And quite frankly, we're still learning the lessons right now because this is not over. We are entering into the cool months of the fall and the cold months of the winter. And our baseline of infection is around 40,000 per day, which is unacceptably high. So we've got to get that down or otherwise we're going to have a very tough winter in the next few months. For the sake of time, this will be my final question before we move on to audience questions. So especially in light of the upcoming election, many many public health experts have become political figures, whether by choice or not. And so how do you, how if at all, do you feel that public health officials can or should navigate that role between, you know, relaying public health information to the public, as well as the political minefield, which has emerged in the United States over the past few months? Well, that's a good question. And, and I think it's the difference between politics and policy. Um, so what I have tried hard, and I believe I've been successful in the six presidents that I've had the privilege of advising over the last 36 years, is you've got to stay out of politics. You may be involved in developing policy and making sure that the policy you develop is absolutely based on scientific evidence and scientific data, and that you don't interject into that any ideology, any prejudice, any inconsistencies. So public health officials and scientists should stick to what we are. We are driven by the science and science knows no political party and science in its purest sense doesn't know any ideology. It just knows the facts. So my advice to people in science that you should get involved in policy, but don't get involved in politics unless unless you want to be a politician. And then when you want to be a politician, then you give up your uh, title of scientist or whatever it is you want to be. Well, thank you so much for answering all of my questions. Now I'll be moving into an audience Q&A portion. So all of these questions were submitted by UC Berkeley students and faculty, and it's my immense pleasure 
and privileged to be able to ask these questions to you today. So let's get started. Um, the first question is from Ankita, and it's about a return to no normalcy. People often use phrases like after this all ends and post COVID. Do you see this return to normalcy as a hard rigid transition once the vaccine is distributed or more of a soft one where we inch towards normalcy slowly over several months or years? Well, excellent question. The latter, absolutely. It's not gonna be like turning a light switch on and off at all. And even with a vaccine, again, a vaccine is not going to be 99% effective. I'd love it to be, but it's not. And 99% of the people are not going to be vaccinated. They're not going to want to be vaccinated. So let's say you have a 75% effective vaccine and 65 to 80% of the people want to get vaccinated. You still have a lot of people in society, and let's take this country as a societal unit, that are vulnerable to being infected. So the questioner, the person who posed the question, I think used the right, right terminology. If we're gonna softly go into a graded degree of normality where you know it would be not, a shutdown is the extreme. We're not even in shutdown now, but it's instead of being so careful that businesses are closed, businesses will open. Will people have to wear masks? Yes, likely. I would imagine if we get a good vaccine now that we could have some degree of normality in the third quarter to the fourth quarter of 2021. I think ultimately we will get back to normality as we knew it before this. But as your questioner correctly hinted, it's going to be a gradual process in which the restrictions on things restaurant numbers, theater attendance, spectators at sports, all of that will come back gradually, but it will come back. And so this next question is something that's probably relevant to a lot of the audience and UC Berkeley itself. And so this comes from Christine who asks, what are some of the most common mistakes you've seen colleges around the nation make with their reopening plans? And how can colleges move forward in offering the best education to their students while also following safety guidelines? Yeah, probably the most, um, I don't want to use the word egregious because that has a degree of pejorativeness to it. I would say the most dramatic <laughs> mistake that some colleges have made was to bring all the students back somewhat naively thinking that they'll control infection when you know they're going to be infected. And then as soon as they see students infected, instead of dealing with it, said, okay, send them all home. And what you do then is that you send infected students back home to infect the community from which you came. Now, many colleges are doing something that has worked for them. And that is test all the students before they come onto the campus and go into a dorm if the college is dominated by dormitory life. Then do surveillance testing every few days, a couple of times a week. When a student gets infected, have the capability of isolating them either in a, in a dorm floor or in an entire separate dorm, segregating them from the rest of the students. And when they recover, which they usually will do in about 10 days, then put them back with the student body. 
But when they get infected, don't send them home. Keep them there. Keep them comfortable. When they recover, get them back to class. The big issue in some schools was let them all back. As soon as you see they're infected, send them all home. That was not the right thing to do. And so this next question is about reinfections. And this comes from Kevin. So what Kevin asks, what is your take on the supposed repeat cases of SARS-CoV-2 infections that were documented in South Korea and other countries? And how would you explain such phenomena? Well, there's now about eight or nine that have been reported. And what it means is that if, you know, in a, in a natural infection of common pathogens, like I was infected with measles when I was a child because I'm old enough not to have gotten the vaccine. The fact that I was infected with measles, the immunity to measles is so strong after infection that I'm protected against reinfection, even though it's decades and decades from my childhood. That's not the case with COVID-19 because coronaviruses, they give you protection after you're infected, but the protection doesn't last decades and decades. It lasts more many months to a year or two. So the fact that people are getting reinfected means given the bell-shaped curve of life, that there are some individuals in which there's no protection and some individuals have a really lot of protection. And most of them in the bell-shaped curve are protected for a matter of several months to a year. So that means that the protection wanes, which tells you something important, that that being the case, we want to make sure when we get a vaccine that we get a long-lasting protection and we realize the possibility that we may need to boost people intermittently over a period of time, the same way you boost people to a tetanus shot, which does not last throughout your entire lifetime. And so for our next question, this comes from Brian, and it's about animal-to-human transmission. So Brian asks, SARS-CoV-2 is said to have zoonotic origins, and 75% of newly emerging emerging infectious diseases in humans come from non-human animals, often through heartbreaking animal exploitation. How can we as a society reshape our relations with our fellow animals for the health and survival of us all? You know, that's a very good uh, question. And there is a movement, um, you know, called the one movement in which there's, you know, we, we all are together with animals. We live in, in association with animals. The, the typical wet market um, scenario accounted for both the SARS outbreak and the COVID-19 outbreak, where man civilization encroaches upon the animal world in a way that is a bit unnatural. You bring in forest animals, you put them in a market to sell for um, festive dinners, and they bring in microbes that have probably evolutionarily adapted themselves to the animal so that the animal isn't sick. But when it jumps species, sometimes it develops the capability of adapting itself to a human. And then you have a new disease, the same way we had with HIV from chimps, with influenza from wild fowl, 
with Zika uh, from mosquitoes and uh, uh, vertebrate hosts, and now with COVID from a bat, usually to a secondary host, to a human. So we've got to readjust, as I think the person who asked the question was saying, to be very careful and sensitive about how we encroach on the animal world. And so our next question comes from Adrian, and this will be about universal health care. So considering how everyone is how worried everyone is regarding oversaturation of hospitals due to COVID-19, do you think a universal health care framework in the United States would be able to better handle another outbreak of this magnitude? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, we have um, we have a system in the United States in which a number of people fall between the cracks. Uh, we see that literally every day. It gets uh, amplified when we have a health crisis. But what we all hope for, you know, there was an attempt at it and quite, you know, I think successful with the Affordable Care Act. But the fact is that we've got to make sure that we have a health care system where no one can go without necessary health care and quality health care. I think there's this concern that if you make it universal, the quality will go down. It doesn't necessarily have to go down at all. But when people fall between the cracks of health care, then you get an even more difficult situation than the outbreak itself poses. So the short answer to your question is, yes, we do need universal health care. And so another question is from Subiksha, and this is about anti-vaxxers. So the anti-vaccine rage was gaining traction even before COVID-19. How do we plan to address the nation's split comprising of anti-vaxxers and those actively seeking a vaccine, especially if we need a majority vaccinated to contain the spread of the virus? Well, I've been dealing with the anti-vaccine movement uh, mostly centered around measles, which is one that triggered that with the false information that measles vaccine causes uh, autism, which it absolutely does not. Um, the one thing you have to do is not denigrate, accuse, or disrespect the people who don't want to get vaccinated if you feel you want to convince them to change their minds. If you look at the anti-vaxxers as a whole, there's a hardcore group that no matter what you do, you're not going to change their mind. But there's also a group that are against vaccines because they've absorbed misinformation. And if you could, in a way that's non-confrontative, give them the correct information, you may be able to win them over if they were open-minded enough to realize that maybe the information upon which they made their judgment of not wanting to get vaccinated is in fact incorrect and you could give them the correct information. There are a number of other people that don't get vaccinated because they don't have the time or they don't fully appreciate the importance and the seriousness of it. If you could make it easier for them to get vaccinated, you may win over at least a segment of the people who for one reason or other does not want to get vaccinated. And so for the sake of time, this will be the last audience question I ask. And this comes from Jordan and it's about mRNA vaccines. What are your thoughts on the long-term impact of using mRNA-based vaccines 
And do you think there will always be a role for more traditional vaccine strategies? Oh, absolutely. Let me answer the second question first. I think there'll always be a role for more traditional vaccine strategies, depending upon what the particular pathogen is that you're trying to protect against and what the population is that you're trying to vaccinate. In other words, one vaccine platform may be more safe in a particular group than others, because when you talk about vaccinating people, you generally break them down into the general normal population, pediatric population, the elderly, pregnant women, women with underlying diseases. So you need a variety of vaccines that might be more relevant to one versus the other. Your first question is that the new platforms such as mRNA and vector expressing uh, genes of particular components of the virus are what's being used right now. The mRNA is very, very easy to adapt to scaling up quickly. You know, with the mRNA vaccine, rather than having to grow the pathogen, then purify it, uh, inactivate it, or or, uh, attenuate it, the reason we went from a sequence when the Chinese put the sequence up on a public database to starting the vaccine trial in five, not trial, but the vaccine development in five days, and an amazing 62 days later, getting into a phase one trial, and six months later, getting into a phase three trial is overwhelmingly the world's indoor record for speed. So if you want speed, you want a platform that you could do that. And the way we did it is we just took the gene for the spike protein out of the database, stuck it into the mRNA, and there you were. You had a vaccine, and that was it. So that's one of the reasons why we did that. But that doesn't mean you give up on the traditional vaccine platforms like purified proteins or whole inactivated or killed virus. Well, thank you for answering all of our questions today. We were really grateful to have you. And now I'd like to invite our president, Cindy Tang, back up for some closing remarks. Thank you so much, Abay and Dr. Fauci. And a huge thank you as well to Christy once more. Awesome. So I'm going to reshare my screen. So at all of our events, we like to present our speaker with a custom poster designed by our communications team for the event, and today's event is no exception. So I'd like to present you virtually with our event poster for the evening designed by Kaho Otake on our communications team. Um, So thank you so much, Dr. Fauci, again for coming. Um, And when we are able to safely return to campus, we will send you a physical copy of this poster as well. Well, thank you very much. It was really a great pleasure to be with you. I appreciate your inviting me and please take care of yourselves and stay safe.